And take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, as we continue preaching through the Gospel of Luke. We're at Luke chapter 18 today. Our text begins with verse 31, going through verse 34. Our text here deals with the third occasion, the third mentioning of a repeated theme that Jesus, in fact, gives himself, and that is regarding his own sufferings, of what is going to transpire in Jerusalem. The other accounts that we've centered, we've considered as we've been going through Luke here, the first one was in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The second one is in Luke chapter 9, verse 44. And so we're here at the third occasion recorded in Luke's gospel of Jesus speaking of, of his coming sufferings, of what he will endure once he, he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And this pattern of these three mentions of this is identified by each of the three synoptic writers, Matthew and Mark as well, identify that these three occasions when Jesus does this. And if you have a reference Bible that gives parallel text, you can see that the other passages that will deal with it. But the parallels to our text will be found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, and also Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But each of the other two accounts, the occasions as well, have the parallels in Mark, Matthew and Mark's Gospels. Now Luke has been deliberate, deliberate in making repeated mentions of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. The first occasion, all the way back in chapter 9, verse 51, where there speaks of that Jesus going to Jerusalem. And we see this theme repeated time after time through Luke's Gospel. Matthew and Mark state in this text that Jesus is in fact going up to Jerusalem. Luke here puts the words in the mouth of Jesus himself in verse 31. He says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And certainly it would be an expected direction for someone who is making messianic claims. It would be expected that eventually the one who is the Messiah is going to make an entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus has certainly made such messianic claims. Jesus is regarded as the Messiah by many. And so it would not be a surprise in their thinking that Jesus is being very deliberate and making this journey to the city of Jerusalem. However, what would not be expected are the details. When Jesus begins to describe the upcoming event. In fact, we find that the, de- the description that he gives is so unexpected that it's not even understandable. It is incomprehensible. It is unthinkable to his disciples. So begin reading with me here in our text, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Then he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles... And will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. 
and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Why are the words of Jesus here so difficult to grasp? Why are they so difficult for the disciples to, to just simply hear and to take them at face value and understand what they mean and to, and to go on with them? And this isn't the only occasion that we find such language where the disciples do not understand that these things are hidden from them. The question that's, that's debated in the minds of many people, and it's, and it's not unanimous even among commentators who address this issue, the question is, is this inability to understand and to comprehend what Jesus is saying because God is actively intervening and preventing them from understanding? Or is it just simply the disciples themselves? They just don't get it. And I've been back and forth myself on and thinking and considering and reading and trying to determine which of the two it is. And I've landed, at least for now, on this side. <laughs> I don't think that divine activity is necessary for the disciples to not get it. That men are just very naturally blind. And if we have preconceived notions and ideas that we can have the truth laid right out in front of us and still not get it. So I don't think that we have to interpret into this that there is God actively working and preventing the disciples from getting it until the appropriate time, that is, after Christ's resurrection when He opens their understanding. I just think He just leaves them to themselves here. And so they don't understand it. They don't get what Jesus is trying to say, that the limitations here are internal in nature. And they're simply demonstrated by this inability to, to understand. So the reality is that we all operate to some degree with the same limitations. The inability to fully grasp the ways of God in the world in which we live. To fully grasp the ways of God in our own experience, in our own lives. And so we have these limitations, just as the disciples did. And so it comes to the point we have to just simply recognize that the ways of God are high above our ways. That we don't naturally grasp those things. That in fact, what becomes necessary is a work of God's grace and His Spirit to open our understanding, to open our eyes. And so if we recognize that the ways of God are far above ours, we, have to end, we come to a place where we must simply trust. Trust in His wisdom. Trust in what His ways are, that they are right and they are good. 
but to be willing to recognize and to know the potential limitations that we can place upon God. The limitations that we can come with that make it difficult for us to, to really get it. To really see what God is wanting to and is quite capable of accomplishing in our lives and in our world. Well, we're going to consider here the limitations of the disciples. And we're going to find, at least I think we will, that we have those same limitations. The first limitation that we see here is the limitation regarding the Scriptures. Notice Jesus' words here in verse 31. Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and then what? All things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. In reality, the, the approaching events that Jesus has foretold about going into Jerusalem and about being rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and their Pharisees and of, of being killed, those things should not be an absolute surprise. They should not be unexpected because these are the very things that are prophesied in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. But the disciples, as products of their own day, they have a distorted messianic image. They have an idea of what the Messiah is going to be like, what he's going to do, and it's partly derived from the Old Testament Scriptures, where the Old Testament does reveal this coming promised one, this Messiah. He's revealed as a mighty, as a conquering deliverer, a savior, if you would. He is portrayed in the Old Testament as the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic office. The prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15. And I will send to you a prophet. Jesus understood to be the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic role in this Old Testament. Understood to be the ultimate fulfillment of the priestly role. Psalm 110 verse 4. You were made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's a messianic text. So he is the ultimate fulfillment of the priestly role that's given to us in the Old Testament. But also, he is the ultimate fulfill, fulfillment of the kingly office in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6, is 6 and following, reveals to us very clearly there, in a text easily understood as messianic in its nature, that the government shall be upon his shoulders. He's a king. And we find in the Old Testament this messianic figure described in what can be termed as nothing other than God-like terminology. David speaks of him in Psalm 110 verse 1 as the Lord, the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. <laughs> David refers to this one as Lord. And then Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he is referred to there as eternal father. So this messianic figure is, is quite impressive, mighty, conquering, deliver, the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly offices in the Old Testament, and referred to with godlike terminology as Lord, the eternal father. All this would indicate that this Messiah is, in fact, 
a godlike and powerful deliverer. All that's from the Old Testament scriptures. And so they would rightly have an expectation that this one who is coming is like that. However, this is an incomplete picture from the scriptures. This is an incomplete picture of the Old Testament portrayal of the Messiah. This picture omits the images of weakness, of suffering. For as far back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the first reference to the promise of a Messiah, there the prophecy of, of a bruised heel. So there's going to be some measure of, of pain brought against this one, just the reference there of a bruised hill, he will come and he crushes the head of Satan. But we also have in passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, again, texts that are very easily recognized as being messianic in nature. And they describe the horrendous suffering of this Messiah, of this deliverer. So you take a one-sided messianic picture that sees only the glory, only the greatness, only the victor, only the godlike characteristics and see these things. You take that and you add to it a politicized portrayal of the Messiah who is in the minds of many nothing more than a, than a national or an ethnic deliverer for Israel. And you come to a distorted view of the Messiah. And that would not have been an unusual view for those in Jesus' day. The Messiah, though, we need to understand, as they expected, was not complete. That was not the full picture so if they're expecting this great political delivery, is it any wonder as they hear Jesus speaking there in verses 31 and 32 of what's going to transpire in verse 33, is it any wonder that the disciples can't get it? They can't grasp that. After all, that's not what's being taught about the Messiah in their day. And so Jesus' corrective for them is this. Verse 31, all things, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. They didn't have any difficulty grasping the glorious side, but they were having a very great difficulty of grasping this suffering side. So Jesus' words are simply this. Consider the complete picture of the Old Testament. Com consider the complete prophetic record regarding the Messiah of what's going to happen, what it's going to be like, what He's going to endure. And come to the conclusion that the Messiah that you expect, if it's all that He is, is this great and mighty political deliverer, then that Messiah would be fraudulent. Because He does not fulfill all that the Scripture teaches. That Messiah would be a fraud or the Old Testament Scriptures must be regarded as wrong. 
Then the other alternative is to take the, the sufferings that are given to the Old Testament and apply them instead of to an individual, the Messiah, and apply them to the people of Israel. And so, Jesus addresses here the limitations of, on Scripture that the that the disciples and those in their world have done. They're looking at part of the picture rather than taking the full picture, the full spectrum of what the Scriptures are teaching regarding this Messiah, what He's going to be like and what He's going to accomplish. And what a warning to us and the responsibility that we have placed upon us to maintain diligence, to maintain diligence to see the full teaching of Scripture on any issue. That we can take any portion of Scripture and come to all types of strange and erroneous conclusions. But our task is to take the full spectrum to see what all of Scripture teaches upon about any issue and come to a biblically informed conclusion. See, many errors and in fact full-fledged heresies are a result of those who fail to consider all of what the Scripture says. The failure to consider all the biblical data or to take a position to decide this is what I believe and certainly based upon one's likings, one's own experience, and of course a couple of Bible verses to back it up. Everything else, all else in the Scriptures is twisted to do nothing more than to affirm a predetermined interpretation and application. It's very dangerous. So we must recognize our own limitations regarding the Scriptures. That we are prone to not see the full picture. To not embrace all of what the scriptures say to us. It compels us that we walk with a spirit of humility. When we are dealing with that which the scripture teaches. To recognize I may not have it all. I may not have grasped the full picture. And certainly there are enough differences in errors among our day that it requires that we walk with the spirit of humility. You know, we have varying systems of theology. We have Calvinists and we have Arminians. We have different views of redemptive history. We have those who are covenantalists. We have those who are dispensationalists. You don't know what all that means. Don't worry about it <laughs> at this point. <laughs> we have differences regarding the roles of women in the ministry in the church. We have complementarian positions and we have egalitarian positions. We have differences of opinion regarding revelatory gifts. We have those who we are con consider themselves to be strict cessationists. And we have those who would say, well, we are continuous that, that the gifts as revealed to the Scriptures, all of those are still valid today. We have different denominations. 
We have Baptists and we have Presbyterians and we have Methodists and we have, with among the Baptists, we have 20 different, at least 20 different denominations of Baptists. Now, I'm not for one moment suggesting that one view is just as good as the other. Nor am I suggesting that one view, that that many views can be right. The fact of the matter is, something's right. And something is wrong. And these approaches to different things in the Scripture, but we need to at least walk with the spirit of humility and recognizing that there are great men of God throughout church history who have landed on different sides of these things. I know where I am on these things. And I think I'm right. But I'd be a fool to speak arrogantly and say, anyone who disagrees with me is in error. We've got to walk with a spirit of humility. Now, I do appreciate the words of John MacArthur. And I've mentioned to you before. He says, I have errors in my theology. I just don't know where they are. And we need to be willing to say that. I have them. I'm sure I do. Because I don't have perfect understanding of the revelation from God. Even as revealed to the Scriptures. And I go to the to history, church history, and read what those who have gone before me and what they have said, and they don't agree either. So it compels me to walk with a spirit of humility and say, I have errors in my theology. I don't know where they are. If I did, I'd fix them. I'd correct them. I'd change them. And I am, by the grace of God, changing some things. Some things, I trust, are being more and more affirmed and they are the foundations of of biblical and truth and doctrine, that they're they're grounded and they're solid, but we get to a lot of peripheral issues and secondary matters. To be willing to walk with a spirit of, of grace and humility. Because the fact of the matter is, we all come with our limitations to the Scriptures. And so the disciples... They had part of the picture and then it was based on the Scriptures, the Old Testament revelation of the Messiah, but they had completely ignored what the Old Testament was saying about the sufferings that this Messiah would endure. So they couldn't understand it. Second thing are the limitations regarding sovereignty. Limitations regarding sovereignty. Now this should seem to be a contradiction in terms. It should come to our mind to have an idea of limited sovereignty. What's that? How do you do that? <laughs> that should strike us as being somewhat oxymoronic. Limited sovereignty. But the disciples' limitations consist of this. Is their inability to understand sovereignty and sin or evil. Here Jesus speaks of the Messiah and of his own experience. He's going to be suffering at the hands of evil men. And this notion, this notion that Jesus introduces about suffering at the hands of evil men 
this does not gain widespread support. It's not a position that his disciples are, are, are running to and ready to embrace. In fact, on the first occasion that Jesus mentions that he is going to go to Jerusalem and there be rejected by the chief priest and to be, and to be put to death, the first instance of that, Peter rebukes him. Peter's words to Jesus are, God forbid it, Lord, may it never happen to you. Matthew chapter 16. That's how popular the idea that Jesus is presenting is received by his own disciples. But then the details become more and more incomprehensible. Matthew and Mark accounts give us more. And in fact, the earlier accounts, even in the Gospel of Luke, tell us some of the things that Jesus has said. He's already spoken of being delivered to the chief priest and the scribes. And they're the word delivered to. What is that? What do you mean delivered to? What do you mean the Messiah is going to be taken and given over to someone? Isn't he in charge Doesn't he do as he wills? Doesn't he go where he wishes? What's this notion of being delivered to the chief priest and the scribes? Well, we know what it is in hindsight. It's betrayal by Judas. And then there's Jesus speaks of being rejected by the elders and the chief priest and by the scribes. Yeah, I'm sure the disciples could hear such things. Like, yeah, that presents some complications, but, you know, this is workable. <laughs> there are some complications that those, the religious elite are, are rejecting Jesus as a Messiah, but perhaps when Jesus comes, He comes into Jerusalem, He stakes His claim, they recognize Him for who He is, and they own Him as, as the Messiah. Maybe that's going to be what happens. So we can work with this idea that He's going to be rejected at least initially by the Elders and the chiefs, chief priests and the scribes. Then in verse 32 of our text, Jesus says this. And he's never been this detailed. He says, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. This isn't looking good. This isn't looking like a Messiah. This isn't looking like a conqueror who is coming in and to lay his claim as the rightful ruler of all the world. This doesn't look like someone who's coming in and to break the iron fist of Rome. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles and be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they've scourged him, they will kill him. This is utterly incomprehensible. Which is what says in verse 34. The disciples understood none of these things. The meaning of this statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend these things. You get the idea here that Luke's trying to make it very clear they didn't get this? Incomprehensible. Does this sound like your idea of the victorious Messiah to follow? It seems so completely inconsistent 
I mean, if you talk about both sides, where's the glorious side? Where's the victor side? <laughs> this is all suffering and gloom and mocking and mistreatment, scourging and even killing him. This looks more like a helpless victim. He's killed by the Gentiles. How in the world can you twist, can you spin this anyway and come away with the idea of victorious? What kind of spin are you going to put on this? If Jesus' words be taken at face value, how does any good come from this? A Messiah that comes, but He cannot deliver. He is killed. Evil prevails. Evil wins the day. Therefore, Jesus, if this be true, if His words are taken at face value, and He is in fact going to die, He cannot possibly be the Messiah. And His defeat and His death, they prove it. He can't be the Messiah. So the disciples' conclusion must be something like this. We can't take these words at face value. These words must mean something else. We don't know what. We don't know how to spin it. But they can't mean what they sound like. And so, verse 34, they didn't understand it. See, there's a biblical view of sovereignty and evil, and that is this, that God prevails over and works through evil. Of course, the Old Testament model, which we've referenced many times, is of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's words to his brothers after they have have indicated repentance and they've come and Joseph has saved their life and he evaluates all that's transpired over his own life because of their evil, their wickedness, he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil. There was nothing gracious or good in your mind. You meant this for evil. But, know this truth, there was an overarching sovereign God who meant this for good. So that that which was evil within your hands was overruled, was Sovereignly controlled by the hands of God. And God was working good even through your evil, de- evil deeds to save the life of many. The most hideous sin of mankind would be Jesus' death. How more wicked can you possibly get than putting God to death? The most hideous sin upon the human race is putting Jesus Christ to death. And as we read in the book of Acts a few moments ago, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that this is according to God's predetermined plan. God working and accomplishing His purposes through evil. So yeah, I got that. But you got an exception here. Here's Joseph. You got an exception. Jesus, yeah, that's the Messiah. Surely God can work things like that. What about Paul? Let's look at a few comments of Paul. Look at Paul, Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only this, we exult in our tribulations. (laughs) We exult in our tribulations. Have you anybody exalted in your tribulations in here lately? 
He's not talking about ingrown toenails. He's talking about hatred. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about mistreatment as a servant of God. And we exult in our tribulations. Why? Because tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. So, what does it just happen? Are we just to assume that just because we experience tribulation that we're going to have perseverance? No, because a lot of people have experienced tribulation. They've not persevered. Tribulation brings about perseverance only as the sovereign hand of God works in our hearts through such tribulations. That He grants us the grace of perseverance, proven character, and hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 6. But if we are afflicted, is it a loss? It's a waste of time. It's ruining my life. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So Paul just says this. My experience of affliction, of trials, of suffering in my life, is for your benefit. That is, the grace of God is manifested in my life. And God meets me in this trial. When you are in a similar circumstances, circumstance, I can be of genuine comfort to you. Because you can't look at me and say, you don't understand. Paul can say, oh yes I do. Even far worse. So that I interpret my afflictions and the trials as God's means for bringing comfort to the saints of God. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What circumstances? My imprisonment, verse 13, and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusted in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Here's Paul's spin. On the evil deeds of men? Why is he imprisoned? It's ultimately for his identity with Christ, proclaiming Christ. Here's his spin. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, and it has been an aid to embolden fellow laborers in the gospel. They have more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul's not alone. Peter, First Peter, chapter three. First Peter, chapter three, verse fourteen. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, here it is, folks. You are blessed. You're blessed. In chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, 
but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, and that's how we must, in fact, interpret our sufferings. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you, here it is again, in case you missed it the first time, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So biblical understanding of sovereignty is this, that even the acts of evil men are according to the plan of God, according to His predetermined plan. So I'm going to ask you, how do you respond? How do you respond to God's use of evil in your life? God's use of evil deeds, God's use of evil people in your life. How are you responding? I have a suspicion. That you're a whole lot like me. And that many times we're not responding very well. I can think of all the reasons why I'm the exception to the rule. Why my sufferings are different. Why my exceptions my my sufferings are not things that God can be using. God's not in this. That's a distorted view of sovereignty. And I hope it seems oxymoronic to you. I'm not the exception to the norm. I am part of God's norm. God has always continues to accomplish His work even through evil deeds of men. And according to what we read there in the book of Acts, He he predetermines the most evil act of men predetermined plan, evil acts of men against Him, against His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He can do that, I can rest assured that any evil against me is more than a chance, more than just my fate, or just evil prevailing. It's not happening. God prevails. Our God reigns. He is sovereign. And that it is infinite wisdom that ordains and orchestrates such events and such evil in my life for my good and for His glory. And if that's not true, woe be to us all. Now what limitations upon God's sovereignty regarding evil do you place in your life? And our complaining, our griping, our whining. Now, why me? <laughs> Simply put, why me is, as I've told you before, my sanctification and His glory. That's why me. God wants to sanctify me, and He chooses to do it through whatever means He will, even through the evil deeds of men. To sanctify. And finally, we see the limitations regarding salvation. Almost lost in this is the last part of verse 33. And the third day he will rise again. 
You know, there is a triumph at the end of this thing. (laughs) But it's almost lost here, isn't it? The third day, he will rise again. The disciples had their idea of a Messiah's delivering and his saving work. And it was about reestablishing God's rule on earth and Israel as the center of operation and the enemies of God's either bowing down or being crushed beneath his feet. That's what they're looking for. But the concept of salvation as Jesus accomplished is completely foreign to the thinking. Because what Jesus accomplishes, He deals with their need to be delivered from your one's own personal sin. The requirement of one man's death for the sins of another. So wicked are your sins that someone else must die in your place. And sin so evilly that it requires the death of Jesus, God the Son. That's how evil sin is. Men can't fix it. See, the disciples' view of salvation, their deliverer, it's attractive. I mean, whoa, who wouldn't be? You've got this idea of an impressive, this mighty conqueror coming in. Man, there's some, that's a, that'll draw the crowd, won't it? And Jesus' actual redemptive work is very ugly. It's very messy. Jesus' actual redemptive work carries with it the offense of a cross. Foolishness to the Greek, stumbling block to the the Jew. The notion that someone must die, and in particular someone must die this kind of a death, in order to save me is absolutely repulsive to the natural man. And the notion that someone would be a deliverer who, who experiences the curse of God by being hung upon a tree is absolutely unacceptable to the Jewish mind. And what it comes down to, I may have sins, but my sin is not that bad. It requires that. It requires a bloody Savior to come and to die for me. My sins don't need that. And the essence of a substitutionary atonement is this. I deserve exactly what Jesus took. That's the substitute. One takes the place of the other. See, God's plan of salvation is this. He does whatever is necessary to redeem and to reconcile. And so with it, there is a cross. But there is a victory. There is a victory. There is a triumph. He rises again. And there will be the coming of this Messiah, this Christ, in all of His glory. It's yet to come. See, I find it's quite easy to draw people to a Savior who will save me from others' sin against me. God save me from this troublemaker. (laughs) 
God deliver me. It's easy to find a Savior that will do that, that will save me from others' sin against me, or that will save me from the effects of a sin-saturated world, a fallen world. Save me from financial ruin. Save me from a bad marriage. Save me from a job layoff. Save me from my wayward kids. Save me, save me, save me from all this, all the effects of living a fallen world. You can draw a crowd to that kind of a Savior. That's the kind of Savior we'd like to have. Few are ready to follow a Savior like this. A Savior that addresses the, the, the real need, the true need of their heart, is not the sins against you, that's not the effects of living in a fallen world. The real sins from which you need deliverance are your own. There's your priority, number one. And Christ deals with those sins on your behalf. He may choose to spare you from the consequences of others sinning against you. He may choose to spare you from the consequences of living in a fallen world, and to some degree He does. But He may not. So do you still love this Jesus who does nothing but save you from your sin? He doesn't make life easy. He doesn't make it comfortable. Is this Jesus one you'll follow? Is this a Savior you're willing to own as your own? So we must see that our sin, my real problem, is my sin. And apart from the grace of God, I'll never see that. So the limitations regarding salvation that the disciples came with, they wanted a, they wanted a national redeemer and a Savior to deliver, deliver them from if nothing else, from the rule of Rome. And Jesus said, I've come to deliver you from much more than that. That you can live in Rome. You can live under the tyranny of Rome, but be free from the guilt of your sin. That is deliverance. Is this plan that Jesus presents for saving men such an unthinkable plan? certainly was for Jesus' disciples. But we'll say this for this unthinkable plan. <clears throat> it works. Doesn't it? Men are truly delivered from sin with this plan. Deliver Israel from the tyranny of Rome. But what use is that if you still go to hell in the end? I want someone who deals with the real issues of life. The eternal issues of life. That deals with each, where I will spend all of eternity. This is a plan that works. And it's the only one that does. Men are saved. Men are saved from sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you did not consult with men to devise a plan of salvation. But simply you thrust it upon us 
and though it is rejected by and large by most of humanity, to those who have been called, we rejoice. It is the wisdom of God. Lord, take these truths, apply them as you will to each heart here today. Lord, remove any fodder that is nothing more than than the, the vain imaginations of the speaker. May the truth of God prevail. In Jesus' name, amen.